Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the J. Berg Wilk Learning Series for 2017-2018. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Today's topic, though, is American, Israeli, and Jewish legal perspectives on divorce. And my name is Larry Hirsch. I am a partner here at Jayberg Wilk, and I specialize uh, in family law, or domestic relations, as we call it in Arizona. That is the only area of law in which I practice. I've been practicing in that arena for, oh, it saddens me to say it, but nearly 20 years now. Mm -hmm. So... And there's a general rule of thumb that every year of family law and divorce that you practice is actually two years of actual practice of law. So I can say that I've been practicing for close to 40 years from a mentally draining perspective. Um, Shmuley's going to talk a little bit about more of the religious and Jewish perspectives on divorce law. I'm going to talk a lot more about the American perspectives on divorce law and compare and contrast a little bit to uh, Israeli divorce laws, as well as kind of talk about what I think are a few of the hot topics in American divorce law, some of the more controversial things going on, and some of the um, more difficult aspects of our divorce cases here in Arizona that we see that can produce a lot of conflict. Um, Interestingly enough, and we'll probably get into this a little bit more, in Israel, there are two different tracks or um, two different branches of jurisprudence in the area of divorce law, which I think is really interesting. In America, you have one, essentially, and that's the divorce court or the family court in most states. In Israel, you actually have two different tracks, and one is very similar to the American type of jurisprudence, and the other is based upon Jewish law or halakha, Um, And the two of them are completely different, oftentimes, and completely at odds with one another. And one of the things that we'll talk about that is most interesting in Israel is this kind of, this concept of first to file. And what that means is whoever the first to file is in Israel, whether it's the uh, husband or the wife, actually gets to choose which court you will have your proceeding in. So... If you have a Orthodox family, for example, and the husband seeks to have his case heard or their case heard under the religious court and the rabbinical court, if he files first, then that is where that case occurs. Now, what's interesting about that and fairly controversial is, to those of you that are familiar with the ultra-Orthodox or Haredi populations, it's quite rare, if not impossible, for the woman to file for divorce, or the wife. So, because it's always the husband that files, and because the husband files first, he gets to choose, and therefore, the case will proceed in the religious court under a rabbinical review of the facts of the particular case. And you can imagine, under Orthodox law and under uh, Jewish law in the Orthodox community, where that case likely goes if there are kids and if there is money involved, And Shmuley and I will get into a little bit uh, of that uh, as we kind of play point-counterpoint between the American, Israeli, and Jewish perspectives um, on divorce. Um, So I'm going to get into a couple of just real general tidbits about Arizona divorce law, and then we'll get more into uh, Israeli and Jewish perspectives. Um, And I kind of looked at this. Everybody knows what divorce is. Everyone knows that either husband or wife can file here in the States. doesn't matter who files first. Um, One thing that some people don't know is that here in Arizona and in most states, 
Uh, divorce is not part of the civil court system. So if you have a contract case, uh, you think that you had a contract with a, a you know, vendor for $10,000 and you sue that person, it takes place in a civil court. Here in Arizona, the family court is different. It actually has a name and that name is a court of equity. And it's a different branch with different judges and the cases are actually looked at very differently because in a contract case, what we are looking for is essentially who breached the contract, who's the winner, who's the loser. Very simple. In a divorce case, and a lot of people don't know this, what the court is looking to do is create equity. What is equity? Well, equity is something that's fair on both sides. Think about if you had a breach of contract case and you went before the judge and both sides said, well, we kind of just want what's fair. That's not how that works. People wouldn't pay their lawyers for a fair result. Instead, in divorce court, though, that is what the judge is trying to do. He's, he or she is trying to find a fair resolution, an equitable resolution of the division of assets, of custody, of child support, of spousal maintenance. And so one of the things that happens is a lot of clients will come in and they say, oh, I want to bury this individual. And the funny thing about it is, that's not what the court's role is in a divorce case. The court's role is actually to create an equitable resolution of the divorce case. And here in Arizona, equitable usually means equal. But there is case law which sets forth that uh, equitable does not always mean equal, and we can get into that in a little bit. Um, another interesting point in Arizona divorce law specifically is we have a 60-day waiting period. So... People will come in oftentimes and they'll say, oh, you know, if a husband comes in, me and my wife agreed on everything, we've written it out, and I just need you to get me through this process, but we need to be divorced next week. And that cannot happen. No matter how nice you guys want to be to one another, there's a 60-day waiting period, and that waiting period is actually premised on old Roman Catholic law, where the hope is that people will reconcile and get back together. And so Arizona says, well, you have to wait 60 days. It's kind of a cooling off period. Interestingly enough, because it's based on Roman Catholic law, in Italy, you have to wait a year after you file to get divorced. You can only imagine how that might drive up the legal fees in Italian divorce cases, which are probably quite dramatic anyways. Um, so, and in the U.S., there are essentially two overarching systems or concepts, and those are what are called equitable distribution and community property. Now, equitable distribution is what most states follow. I think 40, approximately 42 of the 50 states are what is called an equitable distribution state. And in those particular states, interestingly, what you can do is you can ask for or request from the court what's called a disproportionate share of the marital estate. So let's say that you have a marital estate that has a million dollars in assets. And we'll make it really easy. There's not much else, but you have a million dollars sitting in a bank account. In an equitable distribution state, you can say, I, the husband, deserve 700,000 and wife deserves 300,000 and here's the reasons why. And wife can go into court and say, I deserve 900,000 and he deserves 100,000 and here's the reasons why. And wife may argue because I was a stay-at-home mom, because my husband cheated on me, or all these different reasons. I have you know, any children at home, therefore I need a disproportionate share. And the court has the ability to do that in equitable distribution states. In Arizona, which is a community property state, the court does not have the ability to make a disproportionate award. There, there are extenuating circumstances under a certain case that's called the Toth case, where they may be able to do so, but generally, Community property, which is mostly found in Western states, is a even-steven deal. Community property, the general law is that anything acquired during the marriage, other than by inheritance, <clears throat> is considered community property. And community property in Arizona is to be divided 50-50. So, if, um, if a wife during the marriage earns above her, you know, she gets regular income, and she's able to save $200,000, puts it into a savings account. And at the time of divorce, 
or at the time of service. That account is $200,000 under regular Arizona community property law. Husband gets $100,000, wife gets $100,000. Very, very simple. Um, one of the big surprises that clients sometimes have is retirement accounts. We have a lot of marriages that were ongoing for 30 plus years. And let's say that husband worked and he worked and he worked at the same company at SRP for 30 years and he accumulated a $2 million retirement account. Well, a lot of times during our first meeting, that person will say to me, well, that account is mine, right? I worked. I did all that work and I put the money away and I went to the office every morning at seven o'clock and came home at six and I climbed power lines and therefore that retirement must be mine, correct? And under community property law, oftentimes I have to break it to them that no, the account is one half your spouse's and one half yours. And so that's where we get into community property. Um, and uh, most of the Western states are community property states, Arizona, California, Oregon, Washington, Hawaii, um, pretty much everything um, east of the Rocky Mountains is an equitable distribution state. So there are distinct differences. Oftentimes you will see that there are um, people, for example, who are from Illinois, which is an equitable distribution state, and they'll have a winter residence in Arizona or California, and one of them will file in Arizona, and one of them will file in Illinois. Why? Because depending on which perspective you are coming at, it is better in Illinois or it is better in Arizona. So we oftentimes find these large jurisdictional fights about where the case belongs before the divorce case even proceeds. I've had some where we went for a good six months arguing over just jurisdiction in which state is going to have jurisdiction over the divorce. Um, now, as I talked about, in Israel, there are two different overarching legal schemes, and that's the civil court versus the religious court. Um, and in the religious court, obviously, the rabbi or a rabbi oversees that process, and it's called the rabbinical court. Now, interestingly, in Israel, they have a Supreme Court, very similar to the United States, and the Supreme Court can overturn a decision of the religious court. What we don't see very often, though, is the female actually taking the case up through the appellate levels up to the Supreme Court in Israel. Um, another interesting fact about United States divorce cases, other than the state of Texas, in the United States, divorce cases are always bench trials. Now, that's very different than civil courts. In civil courts, you have a right to a jury, and you get a, a jury trial, and they last sometimes you know, a week or two weeks. In American jurisprudence, divorce cases are before one trier fact. Now, there's lots of reasons for that, but I tend to think that the main reason why divorce cases don't go to juries is because juries, A, have difficulty understanding the law, but number two is divorces are so emotional. And what, we, what they found in states where juries were still used is that the lawyers would play up these you know, discriminating facts about one of the spouses to the jury. So you get a jury that was comprised majority females and husband was an adulterer. Well, the attorney is going to play up those facts and somehow, someway, the jury is going to put that in their head that they have to punish the adulterer. When in reality, that has no bearing on the case whatsoever. And so that's why we have cases mostly before bench trials in divorces. Um, in Arizona, interesting little tidbit, um, we see these civil cases, these breach of contract cases, and I'm sure some of you are familiar, or maybe you've sat on a jury, and they can last for five days. Big cases can go on for two or three weeks before a jury. In the divorce context, we get, if we're lucky, two days. If we're lucky. Usually what we get is one day, okay? Now one day means an hour and a half break for lunch, means a bunch of arguments over motions in the morning. Hi, Shmuley. Which means that essentially, in some cases where you have issues of custody, you have millions and millions of dollars at stake, you will have a total of three hours to put on your case, which is completely different than a civil case where you get to bring in all your experts and walk them through their testimony for hours and hours on end. And so what 
one of the things that's most difficult for divorce lawyers is to take all of this information with your experts and boil it down to, I need to have this expert on the stand for 15 minutes. Otherwise, I am going to miss my time. And some judges in our divorce courts here in Arizona actually keep a chess clock. When you are talking, they start it. When you are done, they stop it, and they do it with each side. And the second that you hit your time limit, the other side will, of course, raise their hand and say, I believe the other side has hit their time limit, and the judge will stop you. And if you haven't gotten all of your relevant information in, the first person to look over at you and go like this is, of course, your client, because they know that you have nothing more that you can say to the judge. Um, I've got a little bit more to talk about in terms of Israeli law, but why don't we bring Shmuley in? Uh, I pride myself on and should I should I do early. an introduction or? Uh, no, I pride myself on always being early, but there seemed to have been some accident or something, so I apologize uh, for missing your, your intro, especially. So does everyone have? First of all, it's great to be here in this great law firm, um, who's uh, as you know sponsoring our, our learning season, which is deeply meaningful to us and thousands in the community, um, and uh, and to be doing this session with you. It's of great. course. So does everyone have a handout? Everyone does, right? Okay, great. So I want to wade through the, the messiness of Jewish law and divorce, uh, which really would take a semester, but I'll, I'll, I'll give the highlights in, in 20 minutes. Um, yes, please. Thank you. And, um, um, and feel free to jump in at any point. So it starts with Deuteronomy, our first verse, verse here. And keep in mind, this, this is over 3,000 years old, this first text. When a man takes a wife and possesses her, right? That's how it works. You take her. Um, and if she does not find favor in his eyes because he finds in her some kind of nakedness, some kind of erva in Hebrew, he writes her a bill of divorce. And that bill of divorce is called a? A get. And places it in her hand. And he sends her out of his house. She leaves his house and goes to another man. <laughs> Now, the, the, for the next few thousand of years, they're going to wade through the meaning of every word that was just used. <laughs> um, now, what's the reason they want a clear moment where it ends from a religious perspective? Well, I mean, from a legal perspective, it's the end of obligations, moral obligations, legal obligations, right, when there's a clear end. But religiously, what are they concerned about? Okay, right, that if there's not a clear get process, then a new relationship would be adultery. And that, what would that child be called if they had a child through that? A mumzer, which is mistranslated as a bastard child. Um, so they have these needs to have this clear end. And it's interesting that it says, um, she does not find favor in his eyes. Because correct me if I'm wrong, it's only a few decades old in America that you, you um, don't need total grounds for divorce, right? Correct. Many states right. used to be what right. were called fault states. Right. And there still are a few fault states. New York is one of them. Right. Um, but Arizona is a no-fault state. Okay. So you don't need to prove grounds anymore. So clearly just a, 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 just a lack of favor um, would be adequate in this case. Now, um, what is interesting is that there's a way out, right? Um, you could have imagined a system that was anti-divorce, Oh, divorce is a moral ill and shouldn't be allowed. But rather, there's a way out. But what's the problem with the way out? Well, there's a few problems, but it's completely patriarchal, right? It's completely patriarchal. So he takes her, and he's the one to decide. We'll see that that's not exactly the case. But to take one more step back, how does marriage happen? Look at source two from the Talmud. A woman is acquired in three ways, shtar, bia, and kesef. She's either acquired through money, through documents, or se sexual intercourse. That's how a marriage takes place. Um, now, if we wanted to say this a nicer way, although I'm not sure it's accurate historically, it's not that he acquires her, but he acquires the legal responsibilities and rights that come along with this relationship. Um, so, so those are the three ways it comes about, and then they have this whole process of the get after. Now, what's, what's the problem that emerges from the get process today? What do we call that? Aguna. And aguna mean, it literally in Hebrew means chained, someone who's chained to a marriage. And there's essentially four or five different ways that can happen. The most common way is when the husband refuses to give the divorce document, the get. The other way is if a woman refuses to receive it, which we'll, we'll see as well. It can go both ways. Um, another, the second case is um, if someone is missing. If the husband is missing um, and there's no witnesses to his death, then a get process can't take place. After 9-11, nobody knew exactly who was dead and who was missing. 
So then the rabbis had to say, okay, you know, they declared people dead who were clearly dead, but it needed to happen. A third is if someone is in a coma or in a state of insanity. Um, they're what's called a gosace. They're basically on a deathbed and unable to perform this. Um, and the fourth is actually quite complicated. There's a concept called yibum, where if, a, um, if a, a, a man dies and leaves his wife childless, then his brother is obligated to marry her, to give her children. That was the ancient kind of uh, ancient practice. And um, today, sometimes that brother who's living is like six years old. So she would need to wait legally until he was an, uh, 18, actually Jewishly 13. Um, he's, he's not a minor until 13. Um, at a bar mitzvah, well, we all know he's an adult now, right? <laughs> um, and, then, um, and then they're out. So that's another case. That's the fourth way that uh, there could be a problem of, of agunot. Well, and, yes? Can I interrupt? Yes, please. Can I yeah, ask of course. A question? Yes, please. Okay. So the issue of a get has yeah. come up in a lot of my cases. Yeah. It comes up in two ways. Number right. one, of course, when they're going through the divorce process right. Right. and husband refuses. Yeah. Um, or where wife can't afford to get, right. and husband therefore says, I won't pay for it, so kind of refuses in that way. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm wondering, what is the obligation, if any? And number two, we see it come up a lot of times in premarital agreements, mm -hmm. which is that we put actually into a prenuptial agreement right. that husband will allow, I don't know if that's the right term, but will provide the get and will pay for the get. So um, I'm wondering yeah. if there's any obligation under Jewish law to provide the spouse with the get. How, right. is, how is that resolved if, if that woman continues to be chained and he won't yeah. allow for it? Yeah, okay, so legally there is no obligation to give it, um, although clearly morally there is. Um, and we didn't see the type of problem historically that we see today. Um, and, and we see a lack of courage among the Orthodox establishment to employ the mechanisms to uproot this problem, as we'll see in a second. Um, and so to the prenup, so if I ever do a wedding, I require what's called a halachic prenup, which basically says legally, it's a legally binding uh, in secular uh, agreement, that if um, either party will not give, if, if the man will not give the get, every day he will pay X amount of dollars to her. Um, every day he won't give it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, it, and it's actually 100% effective so far. There's never been a halachic prenup where the person won't give it. Now, there are cases in Israel where, um, the, the, where um, the, the courts imprison the man for not giving a get. And, and he, 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 he hates his wife that much that he won't give it and is imprisoned. And in some cases, they have stayed in for decades and even died in jail. Rather than, and they say, you will be released out of prison as soon as you're willing to give this divorce document, and they won't give it. Now, um, here, so skip to source four. I know we're covering a lot of grounds, and I'll come back to your second question. Source four in the Shulchan Aruch from the 16th century says, Rabbeinu Gershom made a law that one does not divorce his wife without her consent unless she transgressed religious laws. Okay, let's bracket that last part. But basically we call this Takana Cherem of Rabbeinu Gershom, and he puts in a mechanism to get out of that also. Essentially, we learned a man can give a get, she passively receives it, and it's over. But then he came and said in the 11th century, she needs to actively receive it. So if she won't receive it, and there's much less uh, um, of a problem of women who won't receive it than men who won't give it, but, but, it, is, but, but it does exist out there. Um, and he, there's one way around it. The woman doesn't have a way around it, but he has a way. If he gets 100 rabbis to sign a letter, 100 rabbis to sign a letter, they can override her not accepting it. It's called heter meir rabbanim. And there are unfortunately some wicked rabbis out there who will do that um, um, and, and, and override. Um, what, would be, what would be a reason why we would see wife refuse? To um, well, so, so for example, um, in a secular uh, divorce, um, they say, I, unless, I get, unless you give me everything I want in the secular divorce, I'm not giving you a get, which means you can't get married again. So people hold their spouse hostage right. until, to use it as a way of, of winning. But what about, I'm talking about more from the wife perspective, yeah. and, and I, I will not yeah. receive it. I won't take it. Until you give me what I want in the secular divorce. Or she might say, I don't want, I, I right. won't allow you to divorce me. I don't want the divorce. Yeah. Okay. Is that difficult in the Orthodox community to see a woman actually stand up and do that? Oh, uh, um, oh yeah. Um, in the Orthodox community, you're rarely going to see women do that. 
Now, here's another issue. Let's say one of the, um, has anyone seen the Netflix movie, uh, One of Us? Yeah, you saw it? Okay, so one of the things that happens is um, that if someone changes their lifestyle, what do you call this? If, the, if they've made a major change in their lifestyle, they have a, a higher risk of losing custody. If they've drastically changed. Yes. Yeah. So in these cases, there's a Hasidic family, and she um, says, I don't want to be Hasidic anymore. I'm out. This is not for me. She's going to lose custody in, in the battle in New York um, of these kids, Mo uh, oftentimes. Yeah. Right? That, that was part of the documentary. Yeah. And there is some truth to that because the argument is yeah. that these kids, you know, usually there's four kids, right. and if they're up to age 12, they've been living this lifestyle right. for so many years. They're used to it. Their friends right. are in that community. Right. Right. Their rabbis are in that community. Their sports activities are right. in that community. So if mother leaves the mm -hmm. um, Orthodox community, mm -hmm. then you're uprooting these children who have only yeah. known one thing their right. entire lives. Right. And so that is what's so controversial about yeah. it is that these women feel trapped yeah. in the Hasidic community, especially mm -hmm. in New York. Right, right. Um, and even in cases where she may have been abused in various yeah. ways. Okay, now here's, an, here's a kind of, not intended to be humorous, but a humorous case. If you skip the source six, Maimonides, uh, Maimonides is widely known as the greatest of Jewish philosophers, but he's also a, he was also a legalist. It says, when the law states that a man should divorce his wife, and yet he refuses, like, uh, a Jewish court at all times and all places beats him until he says, rotze ani. Uh, I, really, uh, I really want to, and, and writes the get um, as it is. So he, of his own free will, has to be willing and able to give a get. Um, and the way they justify physically beating him, and in every two years in the New York Times, you see a story, the, rab the rabbis beat up this guy in order that he'd give the get. And they, their intentions are good. They're trying to liberate the wife. But is this really the best solution we have? A mafia, a rabbinic mafia, right? So, so the, the, the underlying philosophy there is deep, deep down, this guy really wants to give it and do what's right. You just got to beat him to, to get him to do what he really wants to do, right? Which is the same legal justification of putting him in jail. Because you can't put him in jail. Then he's not free will. He's giving anymore. They say, no, putting him in jail is going to get him to do what he really wants to do. Right? So, so, the, so sadly, in Borough Park, you're going to see every few years this is still happening. Is it, is it an actual beating? It's a beat, physical beating. They hijack the guy and beat him until he says, I'll give it. Yeah. And, and these guys, in, in that worldview, this tribal worldview outside of modernity, th these are like, in theory, righteous guys who are, who are feminists standing up for the woman. Right? I mean, the fact that they're beating him isn't very, very I'm good. I'm just trying to picture the rabbis are beating the guys. They're, they're beating the guys. They're yeah. not paying somebody. They're doing it. Yeah, they're doing it. I'm trying to yeah. picture our, Sometimes our they'll local, hire a guy. Yeah. local rabbinic yeah. <laughs> <laughs> engaging. Right, right. Um, so in a post-JDL world of Mayor Kahana and these types of guys, there is like this whole Jewish Defense League of guys who are trained with guns and to defend them streets in the, themselves in the streets of Brooklyn. That they're going to come after the Orthodox Jews, so we have to create the kind of this, they have this like police corps kind of. Uh, which, which has done some not so great things. <laughs> um, okay, going forward, um, if you skip to source seven, um, right, which also deals with the beating case, but then if you go down to where it says gloss, we see a disagreement uh, in the middle of source seven. Since there is this disagreement among the rabbis, we should be stringent and not beat him so that we don't have a force to get. It's called a get ma'usa. Get ma'usa is a problem, it's an invalid divorce document. And so he has to give it of his free will. And so he says, okay, let's not beat him to avoid that problem. All right, one more source, and then I'll explain a few um, uh, traditional ways to get out of the problem that we haven't uh, fully embraced. So in Israel, Israeli, society, in Israeli society, the problem is source number 10, um, this rabbinical jurisdiction from 1953. Uh, number one, matters of marriage and divorce between Jews and Israel, whether citizens or residents, will be in the sole jurisdiction of the rabbinic courts. That means ultra-Orthodox rabbis are going to control the entire system of divorce law. The secular system will have nothing to do with it, neither with marriage, nor conversion, nor divorce. So number two, marriage and divorce in Israel will be performed according to the law of the Torah. Um, now, source number two isn't so problematic, because you could have a whole pluralistic view of that. But source number one tells you who has the authority. Now, here's five or six ways to resolve the problem, um, which very few people are willing to do, aside from people kind of in, in, in my camp. Um, one, yes, please. Yes, please. Good, good. Because it's kind of, kind yeah. of confusing, which is that the rabbinic courts have jurisdiction in Israel, even over the secular, right. over the divorce itself, yeah. okay? which is similar in, in, to American courts. In other words, just the divorce, saying you are yeah. hereby divorced. Mm -hmm. In Israel, however, 
If you are secular, the division of property and the custody portion of the case and spousal maintenance and kids, that would actually be and can be held in the civil Oh, state. interesting. So, oh, so okay. there is a division, okay, interesting. but the actual divorce part oh, okay. of it is still handled by the rabbinic court. Right, okay. And then, obviously, within the Orthodox community, the entire thing is mm-hmm, held mm-hmm. Um, under the jurisdiction of the rabbinic court, which I'm sure you'll talk about yeah, some of the problems. Right. Um, right, and, and aside from all the problems that come from the chief rabbinate, which I think should be dismantled immediately or, or a long time ago, um, the, the, and, and ensure the separation of religion and state, um, which is causing enormous numbers of problems and driving people away from Judaism, although policies of the state of Israel seem to be doing that as well. That's a separate, that's not today's issue. Um, should we just go off on yeah, um, the, the whole pastoral process of we're two secular Jews and now we have to go stand in front of an ultra-Orthodox court of three men, uh, ultra-Orthodox men, and have them facilitate this process is itself an offensive process in my view. Um, okay, so here's a few, way out, a few ways out of it. The first is called get zikui. Get zikui operates on a Talmudic principle called zachin adam shelo bifanav, which means a person um, it wants, to, be, wants um, uh, to have messengers do what's in their best interest when they're not present. Um, I don't know how this works in secular law, where if someone can't be present or can't communicate, you do what's in their best interest, right? Let's say there's not a, someone has an accident and they haven't put a will in place or something. I don't know. We appoint, uh, what's called you appoint, a guardian, guardian item. Right? Yeah. Based upon what we assume to be their best interest, right? Okay, so, so here the idea is that deep down this person who is now in a state of insanity um, or missing or is on their deathbed, um, it would be a merit to him to do what he would want to do, which is to release it, even though he doesn't have the power to do it himself. The second is called mekach ta'ut, that the, that the original deal was bad. What was the original deal? The marriage. So we're going to say retroactively the marriage was invalid. So because we have no mechanism to uproot, the, to, to, to end the divorce, we're going to say there was no marriage in the first place. That's called mekach ta'ut. Like an annulment. An annulment. So yeah. you're talking about situations where the husband will not give the gift. He refuses to give it. We're going to go around him and call it mekach ta'ut. And create an annulment. Yeah. Um, Doesn't that make all the, any children from that? No. Nope. No, nope. a, a mumzer is not a child born out of wedlock. Uh, a mumzer is a child born from adultery. Oh. Okay. Okay. So, source, so the third option is called hafka'at kedushin. Hafka'at kedushin is where the rabbis take what they call hefker, beit, and hefker, or the power of the court um, to um, uproot the marriage. And this is even more radical, because in, in Mechach Ta'ut, they're saying there was fundamentally a problem in that deal. Um, here, and here, here's, a, here's an example of it, um, that the intentions were wrong. Right? They say, that they say, clearly she never would have married this man had she known he was a wicked person. And so she was deceived in the marriage, and the marriage itself can be annulled based upon that, that deception. Hafkat Kedushin goes further and says the rabbis simply have a power to uproot that marriage without any grounds whatsoever, right? Which typically that kind of rabbinic power makes me uncomfortable, but in a case like this can be used for good. Um, A fifth case, and this is perhaps the most uh, 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 radical, is that we should avoid Kedushin altogether. The traditional form of marriage, we should avoid it because if we don't have a traditional marriage, then there's not going to be a traditional problem of needing a get at all. Okay, and then um, another approach is putting a condition in the wedding ceremony itself, which is separate from a prenup process, which itself ensures that this can't happen. Um, now, here's, uh, here's the last thing, and then I'll turn it back over to you, uh, uh, you know, at least as a, uh, by a way of intro, is there's a debate among orthodoxy, is a non-orthodox wedding valid? Right? They don't claim to be doing this in Jewish law, so is a get actually needed in those cases? Right? Someone has a reform wedding, and then, um, then they get divorced, they don't want to have a get, and then they want to marry someone else, um, would, would, um, uh, would they have to go back and have a get, or whatever the case is? So here, there, as, as usual, there was an argument among these two, uh, these two legalists, and Rabbi Henkin um, had the more respectful answer. He said, of course we take it seriously. Those are rabbis, this is Judaism, and... Um, and we respect that that was a real wedding. Conservative, reform, you know, whatever, whatever, they, whatever they did. Rabbi Moshe Feinstein gives the more offensive answer, but in order to solve problems for them. 
He says, of course we don't accept reform and conservative marriages as real marriages. They're not attempting to do this according to legal procedure. This is just a, a celebratory you know, uh, moment, but not done according to tradition. And so, um, and so if they got remarried, that is not adultery and those kids are not mumzerim. So if a mumzer um, is traditionally not able to marry, marry, out, marry anybody, marry another Jew, only another mumzer. So that's why it's considered such a, a significant problem and a moral problem for the tradition. Um, so he has the more offensive answer, but one that actually solved problems. And so do we want a, 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 do we want a less offensive answer or one that's going to solve these problems is a question. From, from your yeah. perspective, right. how do you reconcile in a reformer-conservative wedding, yeah. which is that as part of the wedding vows and when we're going through it, it says, under the laws of the state of Israel, you are hereby husband and wife. So is well, that... Well, you're, you are not able to have a secular wedding in Israel. Okay, I'm talking about, that's right, you were just talking about Israel. So uh, no, I, I'm, looking, oh, I'm asking how oh, you would look at it oh, yeah. in terms of an American wedding where yeah. we are married under okay. the laws of the state of Israel right. and we go through a, I guess what we would call no, a former conservative service. Oh, oh no, but why would the state of Israel have anything to do with it if it's in America? But that's always, that's, isn't that what they say? I, 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 oh, Kedat Moshe Israel. Yeah, oh, you yeah. don't mean Israel the state, you no. mean, yes. Yes, you say Kedat Moshe Israel, right, according to the, the tradition of Israel. Yeah, right. and you, I yeah, guess yeah, you yeah, right, right. usually right. says... Okay, so right, so one of the requirements is the wording being right. Another requirement is um, uh, that there's two witnesses that are, are certain types of witnesses. Um, and then there's requirements around the ring. So, uh, so I, I was invited to do one destination wedding. This guy like, a decade ago flew me to Aruba for this wedding. And I said, listen, there's two requirements of the ring. Number one, you own it because you acquire through this ring. You need to be the owner of it. And number two, it shouldn't have any, um, anything fancy on it. Um, you know, you can, and your engagement ring could be fancy, but the wedding ring should not. No diamonds or anything. So he shows up. He said, I forgot what you said, so I showed up with two rings to be sure. This one I don't own, I borrowed, and this one has diamonds on it. <laughs> so, so I'm sitting there in Aruba like five minutes before the wedding, so, so we were able to resolve the problem. But um, and as you know, in Israel, if you want to get married, a lot of people have to fly to Cyprus. It's totally insane. You have to fly to Cyprus to get married because you only get married. If you are Russian and your, your status as a Jew is not recognized because you had a grandparent who was Jewish, but your mother was not Jewish, and you're not recognized as Jewish by the state of Israel, you cannot get married, right? There's no civil marriage in Israel. Um, and the, the ultra-Orthodox rabbi is the only path towards marriage. It doesn't work. So you have to like fly to Cyprus, you know, or so. It, um, however, to be sure, you do get the legal rights of a partnership, even though there's no civil rights to marriage, but still, there's no marriage. So, um, so yes, it's very possible in that reform or conservative wedding that um, traditionally, that tradi uh, legally it worked, um, even though they don't always want to embrace that. So um, other questions and thoughts on this? This is kind of a really messy, broad overview with lots to, to plug in. And um, um, we're kind of in two different major camps today. The ultra-Orthodox have, have virtually no interest in resolving the Aguna problem. Um, essentially, you know, they're, they're back in that place of anti-divorce, essentially. Um, if the husband wants to keep it in place, then she needs to kind of submit to that. Um, and then we have um, sort of a modern religion, which is not so interested in returning to this patriarchal system or engaging this at all. Um, and so those who are kind of in that middle ground of being modern people and concerned with the Jewish legal procedures are a little bit stuck and kind of fighting this, and I'm kind of a part of that war myself, so... So, all right, so I'm going to hand it back over to you, if I may. Well, and I'm yeah. going to, once you hand it back to me, I'm probably yeah. going to hand it back to you okay. with a question. Okay, good. Because we did a, a, a brief overview of the American system and a little bit of the Arizona system. But one of the things that I was talking about earlier is that in Israel, it, they have a basically a right, a first-to-file rule. Yeah. And how that works is whoever is the first-to-file gets to decide which track you want to be on. And because in Israel, you can be on the civil track, mm -hmm. which is more a secular track, mm -hmm. or you can be on the, in, in the rabbinical court the entire way through your divorce. And then they, the rabbinical court, would have jurisdiction over child custody, spousal uh, maintenance. Oh, interesting. And so the issue that we've seen come up is that in a lot of Haredi and Orthodox communities, women don't ask for divorces. The mm -hmm. men do. And so the men file first, so they get to choose. Mm -hmm. And of course they're going to choose oh, yeah, exactly. that it's going to exactly. be the rabbinical That's exactly track, right. Yeah. And we all know where that goes. Right, right. So one of the questions I had for you is how do you see that playing out and do you see any change? What are the issues with that? And can the Orthodox community improve upon that? Yeah. Um, my short answer... Certainly restricted, res very restrictive for women. Yeah. I actually have no idea. I have no idea what's going to happen with that. 
Um, this, a lot of this stuff is totally unpredictable. I think I understand the direction it's going to go, and then I don't uh, <laughs> at all. Um, and so I see some modern, um, some modern Orthodox rabbis who are addressing this, doing some radical things. And one of the most radical, they're now appointing uh, uh, toanot, uh, which are women court advocates. Right? There's no lawyers in the Beit Din system. There's just judges. Um, and so, but now they're allowing there to be court advocates because this woman is terrified to be standing. This, this Orthodox woman is standing before this court of, of three men, um, and now she has a court advocate who's going to advocate for her in that system. Um, but, in, but, but, uh, but, based, but, your, but based on your specific question, I, I have no clue. Uh, and there yeah. is a um, recent case, yeah. um, which was called um, the Bavil versus the High Rabbinical Court, which ruled that equal protection of women law must be implemented mm -hmm. in rabbinical courts, mm -hmm. which is kind of interesting because I don't know that it's upheld all that much. And also that child support now yeah. in Israel cannot be determined in rabbinical courts unless the mother agrees. Because we were seeing lots of very, very unfair decisions hmm. from the rabbinical courts. Uh -huh. And so that's been something wow. that at least the Israeli court system yeah. has recently changed. Right. Um, but of course we're talking about, I think, 2015 and 16 decisions. So you can imagine for I mean, 1948 until recently, right. completely unfair decisions yeah. coming out of the rabbinical yeah. courts. By the way, do you, uh, just out of curiosity, do you find, um, which way does the bias uh, lean in, in the American system today, towards the man or towards the woman? I guess it depends on what aspect of the divorce okay. you're talking about. Towards custody leans towards the woman? No, no, I don't think so anymore. In fact, that was something I was going to talk about, which is a, a big differentiation between yeah. Israeli law mm -hmm. and American law, which is forever American law uh, through the 60, 50s, 60s, yeah. 70s, and even to some degree, 80s and early 90s, was weighed heavily in favor from a custodial perspective, heavily in favor of the wife. Yeah. And you know, we saw movies like, uh, if you remember, Kramer versus Kramer, and it was very difficult for husbands or fathers to get 50-50 custody of their children. What we saw was a lot of cases where it was weekend or Disneyland dad, as they used to call it. Here in Arizona, we have a presumption now. Now, it's not a true legal presumption in that there's actually a case that states it, but there is a understanding, which is generally now 50-50 or equal parenting time is, is the standard. And what we find is that in order for mom or dad to have more than 50% of the parenting time, they have to actually make a specific argument to the court as to why it would be in the best interest of the child that one of the parents has more parenting time than the other. So by way of example, what we might see is a situation where uh, dad is a world-renowned surgeon and his weeks are traveling all over the United States to perform surgeries and speak at various seminars, and so he's rarely home. In that particular instance, you may have grounds for the mother to say, well, I should have 70% of the parenting time and you should have 30%. But in an average situation, you know, mom and dad are both working in you know, nine to five jobs. There has to be extenuating circumstances for the court to enter anything other than 50-50 equal parenting time. Um, and child support has no bias either. Child support is simply determined by a computer program with a bunch of data points, which typically are, which are the income of mother, the income of father, and then there's a couple other data points, i.e. who's paying for health insurance, who may be paying for private school, or some of the extraordinary expenses that get spit into a computer, and then it shoots out a number. Mm -hmm. And that number really can't be argued with unless you ask for what's called a deviation from the guideline support, which is rare. Um, so we don't really see the bias that we used to see in the American court system. Mm -hmm. So I think that's where it differs greatly, most likely from the Israeli court system, especially, I would assume, the rabbinical courts mm -hmm. in Israel. So um, what I was going to talk about for just a few minutes is um, while we have, well, we've got, I think, about 10 minutes left. Um, I've got to end at 8.55. Um, was just kind of the hot buttons in you know, I think in Arizona divorce cases and divorce cases across the country. Um, and what I think is the biggest issue right now is spousal maintenance. And I want to make sure, does everyone know what spousal maintenance is? Um, it used to be called alimony. 
And the reason why the name was changed over time is because people thought of alimony as man pays woman. That was the understood concept of alimony, and it had, to some degree, a bias or an undertone. And so they started to call it spousal maintenance because there are, in fact, women who pay men spousal maintenance. You have a stay-at-home dad, which is not so uncommon anymore, a mom who's a doctor, and she may end up paying spousal maintenance to the other. So what spousal maintenance is, uh, it's a monthly amount that one of the spouses pays to the other for a certain period of time. So if you're married for 20 years and you're making several hundred thousand dollars a year, maybe you're paying to your ex, let's say, $7,000 a month for a period of eight years. And in divorce cases, that is probably the hot button of the case. It is the, key, the thing that people can't agree upon, obviously, and I'm going to use genders here not with any bias, but obviously, if husband's paying a dollar, it's too much. And if wife's receiving $10,000, it's not enough. We see that in virtually every case. Um, and the difficulty with spousal maintenance, especially in, here in Arizona, is that there's no guidelines. There's nothing. There's some case law that exists regarding whether or not a spouse should receive spousal maintenance, but there is no guideline whatsoever as to what that amount may be. And so interestingly enough, um, I used to teach a trial course where we would teach young divorce lawyers how to put on divorce cases before the court. And what we would do is bring in a panel of judges. And in this particular instance, last time we had a panel of five judges. And we put on a mock case before them with all the different facts that would lend to a spousal maintenance determination. We then had the judges go and give their own decisions. They went back and they deliberated amongst themselves, not with the others. All five judges gave a completely different ruling on the case. Wow. And, and the rulings were, were completely disparate from one another. One was one year at $2,000. The other was five years at $5,000. So you can imagine the risk with going to trial on these issues because you have no idea where it's going to come out. And what that ultimately does is create a huge amount of litigation and a huge amount of problems in their divorce um, because there's no guidance. What's appropriate if husband's earning 100000 and wife's earning 30000 What should that number be? And so there's 13 enumerated factors in, the, um, in Section 25.319B, which sets forth uh, how or, or why spousal maintenance should be a certain amount, but we don't know what that amount may be. In some situations, what if husband's earning $300,000 a year and wife says, well, he can afford to pay me $8,000 a month. Mm -hmm. Well, what if husband also in the divorce took on $80,000 of credit card debt, took on the family mortgage, is paying for the kids' private school? Suddenly that $300,000 on a net basis is a very small amount. And what we have actually seen is some spousal maintenance awards that are so egregious that the spouse that's paying it has had to file bankruptcy or has had to go and move into a one-bedroom apartment just so that they can pay their spouse. And you're seeing a national trend of uh, courts, especially in Florida right now, where they are trying to almost eliminate spousal maintenance because it is, creates such problems. But on the other hand, how do you reconcile the elimination of spousal maintenance if you have a doctor, male doctor, who's earning a half million dollars a year? We have a stay-at-home mom who hasn't been in the labor force for 22 years. And now we've eliminated spousal maintenance. Husband goes on and earns his half million dollars a year, lives in his million dollar home in Paradise Valley, drives his Porsche, and wife earns $30,000 a year. So here's a woman who is previously enjoying a life where she went to the country club, had a nanny, had someone come and clean her house, lived in an eight bedroom, 5,000 square foot house, and now she is living on $30,000 a year 2,000 net dollars a month. So it is very difficult to reconcile those two situations. And some states, Illinois just recently created guidelines where they actually say, okay, 20%, and I don't know if that's the number in Illinois, but 20% of one's, the, the, uh, what they call the payor spouse, 20% of their income post-divorce goes to the other spouse for a period of you know, uh, one-third the length of the marriage. So that's how some states have reconciled this problem is coming up with the guidelines. But of course, in coming up with the guidelines, there's a million different arguments as to what's fair and what's not fair. So it creates all kinds of issues. 
Um, obviously, child custody, as I talked about, 50-50 is the presumption. We see lots of arguments over child custody. Um, but one thing that people, that we now have is that custody is not really an issue here in Arizona. It's broken down into two distinct issues. The first one is what we call legal decision-making, and the other is called parenting time. So we used to have this overarching concept of, I want sole custody. Sole custody doesn't exist anymore in Arizona. It's gone. There is nothing that the court will grant called sole custody. What they can grant is what's called sole legal decision-making authority. And what that is is religion, education, and healthcare decisions. Those three, one parent may get the right or the ability to make those three decisions on their own on behalf of the child. Generally, though, you'll, you will see joint legal decision-making authority. Now, what's also changed, and this has gotten really interesting, is that let's say two parents going through a divorce or even post-divorce can't agree on a doctor. Mom wants Dr. Johnson. Dad wants Dr. Goldstein. So it used to be you go to the court and you'd battle it out. You'd tell them why Dr. Goldstein is better than Dr. Johnson. The other side would say, well, Dr. Johnson is board certified. And the courts finally came to their senses. And they said, wait a second, I, I'm a judge. I don't know why Dr. Goldstein is better than Dr. Johnson, and I'm not the right one to make that decision. So what the courts have done now is that they have essentially converted any of those types of actions automatically to an action for sole legal decision-making authority. The judges said, look, if you guys can't decide what doctor to use, I'm not going to decide because I might get it wrong. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to give one of you the right to decide. So that's a pretty scary thought to these people that can't make a determination on their own. So the judge essentially says, look, you guys either have four weeks to make this decision on your own, or I'm going to tell you who gets to make that decision going forward. And that's a very scary thought for a parent. So what do they end up doing? 90% of the time, they end up all of a sudden figuring it out on their own which is what now the court is trying to say. We are the inappropriate person to make that decision. And so we see that now with choice of schools as well. It used to be the people would fight over choice of schools. Now the court just says, I'm going to give one of you so legal decision-making authority. You'll pick the school. I don't have to hear about it again. Um, and so that's where we've seen some big changes in terms of our local uh, judiciary. Mm -hmm. And one other issue, and this gets a little technical, where we see a lot of litigation is in divorces where there is a business. And let's, uh, let's say that wife owns a business and that business is community property. Well, if wife is going to take that business or be awarded that business, she has to buy out husband for one half the value of that business. So we will get a business valuation expert and that expert will say, this business is worth X. The problem is they will give you two values. One is called fair value and one is called fair market value. They are both very, very different concepts. Fair value is what's called an investment value. Fair market value contemplates a sale. And so there are discounts involved in that. And so the fair market value of a company may be a million dollars, whereas the fair value may be $2 million. You can imagine then, because there is no case law that controls here in Arizona, that the two spouses then fight over what the value is. And one side says, well, there should be discounts applied, and I should be able to buy out my spouse at the lower amount, and so you create these big issues over the value of a entity. And then finally, the, big, the other big fight that you see in Arizona is this concept of separate property. Um, as I talked about before, anything that you acquire during the marriage is community property. But let me give you one interesting example, okay? And this is off of a case called Reuschenberg, which was a seminal case here in Arizona. And what we have, let us assume that Husband comes into the marriage, and he owns a chain of 10 Subway franchises, okay? They get divorced. He says to his lawyer, these are my Subways. I had them before the marriage, right? So it's my separate property. And the lawyer says, you're right. It is your separate property. You get your 10 Subways. Husband thinks, great. I can walk out. Everything's fantastic. And we say, oh, but wait a second. When you got married... Your Subway franchises were worth a million dollars. Your Subway franchises are now worth $10 million. There's $9 million of appreciation. And guess what wife says? 
Wife says that $9 million of appreciation is community property. The million dollar value was when you came into the marriage, that's your separate. But that $9 million has a community aspect to it. And so then we have to look at whether or not <coughs> community labor and efforts went into that appreciation of value or whether that appreciation and value was simply because it's a Subway franchise. Mm -hmm. So then we get into the, the specific facts of the case. Let's assume in this particular instance that husband was a very engaged owner and he went to all of the franchises each day and he ordered the meat and he built the sandwiches and he oversaw everybody and he played an integral, integral role in that appreciation. That's community labor and efforts. So wife would have an opportunity to argue that she is entitled to a percentage of that appreciation. Now on the other hand, let's assume that husband, his 10 Subway franchises are in Maine and he lives in Arizona. He hasn't been there in 10 years. He's done nothing. His managers do everything. He just looks at the books once a, a quarter and says, fantastic. In that particular case, the appreciation can probably be deemed to simply be because it was a Subway franchise in the right location. So therefore, the community would not be entitled to any portion of the appreciation. So you can see the complexity of these situations even when you have separate property. And you know, I could go on and on for days and hours and probably teach a course on uh, divorce law, but I thought I would just talk about some of the more interesting aspects. But I think this has actually been a very interesting dialogue very interesting. on yeah. divorce law. And I wonder if, because I think the biblical and Talmudic models don't have so much wonderful insight to improve the American system, and maybe it's the other way around, sadly, perhaps their contribution can be um, uh, that, you know, I, I'm, as I'm sure you can attest to, I have very rarely sat with people going through a divorce in my family or outside my family who um, have, have said, you know what, um, a lot of this is my fault. Um, and I want to be as charitable as I can in the process. Um, it has almost always sounded like this, my partner is insane. They have, it is completely their fault. Um, and, and basically I want to get anything I can out of this, right? So I wonder if a Jewish contribution can be, like, what are some of the values, and, 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 and I say this not being in the state of rage that someone would be in a process, what are some of the values and character traits that we want to bring to this process of integrity um, um, and, uh, um, and you know, treating the other person with, with dignity and getting what I deserve but not fighting tooth and nail towards the end? Yeah, and I, I think it would be interesting, um, you know, the rabbi at my shul, Rabbi yeah. Jeremy Schneider, mm -hmm. always talks about doing Jewish. Right. And it's funny, in my particular area of law, I don't see typically my own clients or the other side mm -hmm. doing Jewish right. Right. And, and acting right. in accordance with what we expect. Right. Um, so when you, when you say that, it, it does ring true. Yeah. That. Yeah. Well, thank you for this wonderful presentation. And thank I know you, you have to Rabbi. Thank yep. you for hosting this wonderful firm and for all that you do for Validate the Drive. So thank you all for joining. And our, our listeners, we'll have a few thousand listeners there on our podcast and live stream, so thank you for that. And if there's any closing questions or thoughts, those who are still around, I'm, I'm happy to take. I know you Great. have to run, yes. but yeah. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Appreciate thank it. You. And sorry, I, I would love to sit and chat, but I do have a 9 o'clock no, meeting that is set. And again, my apologies for being late. I don't know what happened on the highway. Uh, before we run out the door, uh, is for him or me? You talked, this oh, for you talked about fights over jurisdiction mm -hmm. when there's dual filings. Uh, are there any choice of law issues. Is an Arizona yes. judge ever called upon to apply Illinois? Absolutely. Okay. Mm -hmm. And it gets very interesting when an Arizona uh, court it has to either review an Illinois premarital agreement uh, under Illinois law, but or the division of property sometimes we have an Arizona court have to apply Illinois law, and then we get into an Arizona court um, actually having to look into equitable distribution law, which is completely different. Okay. So, yes, we do end up with choice of law battles. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybaitmadrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education 
in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.